All right, beloved, we are, um, <clears throat> we are in Romans 15, Romans 15, so if you would open your copy of God's Word to that section, if you are using one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, that's page 949, we'll bring you to that section. We've been uh, in this section of God's Word for the last couple of weeks, this will be our last week in chapter 15, and the next week, chapter 16, and maybe finishing out the book of Romans uh, next Sunday, possibly. And what we've been doing is basically looking at lessons, some lessons that we can learn from Paul's ministry in these final concluding remarks of the letter. As I've said before, the teaching portion of Romans has ended, it's, it's done, but Paul has a, a few remaining remarks that he's making here, uh, yet we can draw some lessons here and specifically from Paul's ministry. And Paul was a man who was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a, a changed man, and he lived out his faith in the Lord. And really, that's what we're seeing or trying to pull out of these closing remarks. So we're going to continue to do that today. I'll do some quick review in case you've missed it. Good to see you back, Senia, by the way. Just good to see you. I'm not feeling so well myself today, so... If you can kick in a few amens, that would really help me out like you normally do. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do is read the text. We'll read the entire section. It's verses 14 through 33, and then uh, we'll go ahead and get into some review and then some new material this morning. So the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 14, I myself <clears throat> am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves those in Rome, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain. By way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. All right, so a little bit of review for you, or maybe new to you if you haven't been here in the past couple of weeks. Just four lessons, uh, three actually, three lessons that we've drawn away from this so far. Really, we're making observations and then drawing lessons from the observation, okay? Observations about Paul's life. So one of the things we see is in verse 14, and I'm not going to belabor this because we've already covered this twice now, but Paul was fair and balanced in his ministry. He begins his final closing remarks with commendations, um, but he had admonished them, the church in Rome, in the letter. In fact, he just got through strongly admonishing them in, in chapters 14 and halfway through 15 concerning their... Uh, handling of Christian liberties and how they were dealing with one another, treating one another, the strong and the weak, and you might remember that section. And he spoke strongly to them on some points there. But here, as he's beginning to close out his letter, he basically lets them know, you guys are a a mature church. You're a mature church, and I am fully convinced of that. And we just kind of took from that the idea that, uh, that we should commend one another and admonish one another. It's both. It's a balance when those things are appropriate. And so often we get out of balance, whether we do it with one another or our spouses or our children. And we some, I've noticed we seem to lean towards often the admonishment side, maybe too much, or maybe that's the wrong way to say it. If someone needs to be admonished, they need to be admonished. But then we forget the part where we encourage them through commending them when we see God's grace at work in their life and the good things that God is doing in their life. So just staying in balance. And so God, Paul was a, a fair and balanced man. If, if they were worthy of commendation, he gave it. If they needed some admonition, he gave it. Okay, And so we can, we can learn that example and practice that as well. Second, Paul, and that was in verse 14. Then verse 15, Paul reminded the church of truths that they had heard before. And I talked to you about this uh, Someone called it the reminding ministry of the apostles, the reminding ministry of the apostles. Uh, We need to be reminded of the truths that we may have already heard, that we uh, say we know, because we are forgetful folks. And it is helpful to us to continue to hear those same important truths again and again, whether it be how we are to live our Christian lives, or the gospel, or what God expects of us, or how he Uh, would want us to live, we need to hear those things. And to that end, then, we need to be reminding one another of those very things. Okay, Otherwise, how will we hear it? We need to remind one another. We need to remind our kids, our spouses, of these truths in God's Word. And I was just thinking of a a few when I was thinking about this, and I know I've already covered this, but just to remind you again of this section and this point, here are some passages that I, I have brought to people's attention or to myself Again and again and again, they come up over and over again. So, for instance, Ephesians 4.32, I bet you know it. I bet you know it. But here's what Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Beloved, you could be reminded of that. It would be helpful to be reminded of that of every, every day. Every day. I mean, that is if you plan on uh, interacting with people. Honestly. If you plan on being part of the church, if you're married, 
if you have children, if you're in the workplace. I need, I need this every day. Honestly, I need it. I need to hear it. I need to be reminded of uh, Paul's command and the reason that we forgive. At, we are to forgive as God and Christ forgave us. And he didn't withhold that forgiveness. He freely gave it. He gave it fully. Just so important. Or, for instance, those who uh, find themselves in difficult circumstances of life, one of the things you can do in ministering to them is bring to them the scriptures that they may have heard before that would give comfort to their soul. You know, they, I, you're never going to probably find someone say when they're either in a bad situation or on, in a sick bed or just lost their job, I don't think they're ever going to say, I don't need to hear that, I've heard it already. What they need to hear is to hear what they've heard before again and again. That is especially the time they need to hear. So for instance, a pa- there's tons of them, but a passage in Psalm 3418, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, in those times, sometimes you'll start to think wrongly that the Lord is not near. In fact, where is the Lord? And so you, you can exercise this reminding ministry by bringing to them these things that they may have heard, but tell them again. Because our minds, not only do we forget, but our minds begin to mess with us. Sin, you know, kind of begins to work its way out in our thinking, and we begin to think wrongly about our current situation. So we need to be reminded of the truth so that we're set right. If we're set right, we'll think right, then we'll feel right, we'll act right. Another passage that you guys know, uh, no doubt, because you've been with us through the book of Romans, is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know how many times I've, I've had to share this with the, with the person who knows it, but I have to say to them again because, you know, maybe they come from a Catholic background, and if you come from a Catholic background, baby, you need this, you need this, this message, this text right here over and over again because, man, there is a lot of condemnation going on in that religion, and you need to know there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. I'm set free. Christ has paid the price, past, present, future, in full. I am right with God, not because I'm something, but because Christ is everything. And therefore, now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You do not stand condemned before God. And you never will if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And you need to hear that because it empowers you uh, to live for the Lord, and it, and it keeps you from getting into that weird, funky place where you, you go into like a dark spiral somewhere and you're just feeling heavy. And Satan likes at those times even to kind of dump on you. Yeah, look at you. You are you're a worthless nothing. You're a worthless nothing. Yeah, maybe so, but Christ is in everything. He's in everything, and I'm in him. So shh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see what I'm saying? There's this, you know these passages, but even just to recite them again, to remember them again, I can't, I can't speak enough about the idea of this reminding ministry. And it's why we encourage you to read the scriptures again and again and again and again and year after year after year. Keep at it. Keep doing it. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7. This is the last one. Wow, what an important verse to be reminded of again and again and again. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Anybody got any anxiety? Uh, Maybe not right. Yeah, exactly right. So what are we to do, Senior? We're to cast all our anxiety on him. But what do we often do? The exact opposite. We take it to ourselves. And what does that do to you? It destroys you. It ruins you. It makes you miserable and those around you as well. 
And so you want to be free, beloved? Cast your cares upon him. Why? And I love that last because he cares for you. He wants you to do that. He wants to supply your every need. So anyway, reminding ministry, all right? Three, uh, Paul did not take any glory or credit for his ministry or success in his ministry, but he gave credit to whom credit is due. That is the Lord, and that was verses 17 and 18. Paul would not venture to speak of anything except what Christ had accomplished through him. So he didn't mind boasting, but his boast was in Christ, what Christ had done, was doing, and would do through Paul in his ministry. Paul's boast was in the Lord, and I I quoted someone that said this, that the thought of self-glory was repugnant or revolting, yuck, to Paul. And unfortunately, because of our sin natures, often self-glory is something we are attracted or we find ourselves leaning towards. And so we need to think about this. We need to we need to repent of that. It's sin. We need to boast and glory in the Lord. We need to give him all the credit. So, three more. Three more in the next uh, few minutes here. You ready? Okay. Now listen, I'm feeling a little down, so I need a little bit of energy from you folks. Thank you. You're ready for the next three? Okay, good. All right. I don't know who did that, but I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, here's the observation, and then we'll talk about the lesson. So Paul truly lived in light of eternity. Paul truly lived in light of eternity. And just remember, you know, don't, don't think of the Apostle Paul like, oh, I could never be him or be like him. He was something special. He commanded the church in Corinth to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Uh, we have the same Holy Spirit that Paul had. Not the same office, not even the same ministry, but the same Holy Spirit and the same salvation. Okay? All right. Paul truly lived in light of eternity. How do I know that, and what are we going to draw from that? Well, in describing, I'll show you, in describing his missionary work in the eastern Mediterranean, Paul says in verse 19 that, and you can look back and see it, that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Another translation puts it this way. So from Jerusalem, even as far As Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And you may not know where, uh, maybe you're not a big geography buff. I'm not. I have to, you know, figure this stuff out and look at maps. I can never remember where stuff is. Um, But Illyricum was located in the general area that up until recent history, 1992 actually, was known as the country of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia. So north and far north and west of Jerusalem, or Judea, or or Israel. So from Jerusalem, or the starting point of the gospel, Paul took the gospel to Gentile areas, Gentile areas, that's what they were, far northwest from Jerusalem. The distance, in fact, that Paul covered with the gospel was a span of over 1,500 miles. And you're like, eh, 
you know, day's drive. Or <laughs> yeah, but this was all done without the benefit of uh, modern transportation or communication, okay? So it's substantial. It's a feat. One writer says this, Paul purposed to be a true pioneer evangelist, opening virgin territory to the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Another writer comments and says this, Judging from the New Testament record, Paul ministered in more previously unevangelized areas than any other apostle or preacher. Okay? So he's breaking new ground, baby. He is just out there. He's doing it. And he's doing it with gusto. From AD 47 to 56, approximately, Paul made three missionary journeys. And it was toward the end of his third missionary journey that he wrote this letter that we've been looking at for the past three years uh, to the Romans. But let me remind you of something that he said to the church in Corinth in his letter to them that was written shortly before he wrote his letter to the Romans. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So just remember this, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, all right? And then he says this in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 28. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Just a quick note. You may wonder, why don't you just say 39, Paul? Uh, the reason Paul doesn't say 39 is because according to the law, the Jewish law in Deuteronomy, you could administer under certain circumstances 40 lashes but not more than that. So if you did that, you would be violating the law. And so in order to make sure, the, the Judaizers, to make sure that they didn't break the law, they would administer 39 in case someone lost count along the way. Okay? So it's just historical context. So you know, that's why he says that. So five times, so he may have received 40, who knows if they miscount somewhere, but that's the idea. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This is all during his ministry, beloved. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. You get the idea? Danger! <laughs> in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Oh, and apart from other things, that's, you know, the other things that I went through, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You know, his care for them. So as he's been going through this, his ministry and planting these churches and working with these churches, yeah, he has real concerns for them and for their growth and for the false teachers that want to come in and destroy them. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I bring that up? Well, listen, while God had certainly accomplished great things, great things through Paul's gospel preaching, church 
planting ministry, a ministry that spanned from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. That ministry was anything but easy. Yeah? Not even close, you know? This is not like planting churches in Hawaii. You know what I'm saying? Not that that doesn't have its own difficulties, okay? But uh, no, nothing like that. This is hostile territory. This is going where no man has gone before with the gospel. Uh, This is hard, hard work, and he's in danger wherever he's going. And uh, so not only, you know, the enemy is against him, Satan's against him, the Judaizers are against him, Hard, 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 difficult work. For the last decade, this man has been at it. And none of it's been easy. There's been success. There's been glory. But none of it was easy. That's not even, it was hard, okay? In making Christ known and planning churches through through the, the Mediterranean world, as it were, Paul, as I said, he experienced an incredible amount of trouble and suffering, right? And yet... And yet, the man shows no signs of quitting. Or even backing off a little. Or taking a break, maybe. As we see here in these concluding comments in Romans. Look, look back. 15.22, he says, Now listen, this is the reason, you know, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Okay, so, so because of my widespread missionary work in the eastern Mediterranean, a grueling work that has lasted now 10 or almost 10 years, I have been hindered from coming to see you. Okay? 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, or you might, you might say it this way, since... Paul's kind of saying this, since I have now completed my pioneer church planting ministry in the East, okay, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, Rome, and Rome is west of where Paul has been ministering for the last decade, verse 24, I hope to see you, okay, what? In passing, as I go to Spain, and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Okay, now, historically, it's interesting, uh, one commentator points out that parts of Spain had been occupied by Rome since about 200 B.C., 200 B.C., but it was only in Paul's lifetime that the Romans had fully organized the entire area, therefore making it possible for Paul to go and have a significant impact there in Spain for the gospel, for Jesus Christ. So he's got his eyes set on Spain, the far west. He's already done his work in the east. Another writer says this concerning that comment that he no longer had any room for work in these regions. He says, there were plenty of good things that Paul could have done in those regions, but in light of his gifts and calling, remember he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was an evangelist, the best thing that he could do was to press on to areas where Christ had not yet been named, such as Spain. Such as Spain. If you, if you know geographically, that was the far western side of the Roman Empire at the time. Okay? 
So after all that had already been accomplished through his ministry, and after all the trials and suffering that he had endured, Paul now wants to take the gospel to Spain, or as I said, the far west region of the Roman Empire. Now, hear me. Just hear me out for a second. I was, I was reading a, another uh, pastor's uh, sermon on this section, and he was, he was kind of going after this angle of you know, this Amer- the American dream, one of the American dreams. Not, not the idea, he wasn't talking about the idea of owning a house and a picket fence and a wife and two kids and a dog and all that. He was talking about the idea of you work, and then as soon as you can, you retire. Right? You retire, and, you, and then you spend the rest of your life, I don't know, doing whatever, I guess, um, you know, enjoying life. And in some ways that is for a lot of people. Well, I don't know, that dream seems to be disappearing and it's becoming harder and harder and most people are thinking, I'm going to work till I die. But it is still the idea that maybe I can get to a place, you know, after I've put in the time, after I've put in all these grueling years of work, I want to get to the place where I can take a break, okay? Right? You get that idea? Okay. This is what he says. I, I just thought this was so fascinating. He says, listen, if anyone deserved a retirement condo near the golf course or seashore. It was the Apostle Paul. The man had endured threats on his life, beatings, imprisonment, being stoned, three shipwrecks, and numerous other dangers and hardships for the sake of the gospel. Slow down, Paul. Right? What might be someone says, at least take a little vacation time you're not getting any younger. But here he is telling the Roman Christians that he wants to visit them, but he won't be staying long. He wants to go to Spain to preach the gospel there. Another writer, another pastor commenting on this, and just all that's kind of being said there, really Paul's desire, his ambitions, in light of all that he's done, he says this, another pastor, had, he said this, when I reflect on Paul's ambitions here in chapter 15, 23 through 24, this idea, I'm going to Spain. I'm going to stop by, but my goal is to get to Spain. I'm struck by his undiminished desire to continue in the work of disciple-making long after most men would be willing to sit back and survey their accomplishments, which are listed in 19 through 22. Do you get the... Uh, the thought, listen, I've done enough. In fact, I can't wait to get to Rome. I mean, it was the capital of the Gentile world. There was a lot going on there. I can't wait to get to Rome and just chill. Take a good, long, much-earned break. And yet that was not Paul at all. Paul's like, yeah, I'm looking to come there. I want to say hi. I look to be, I'm looking to be refreshed. Likely, he was looking for support to help him along his way. To where? To Spain, another uncharted territory, so that he could go there and face all the troubles and dangers that he's been facing. Why? That he might make Christ known. Okay? Think about Paul. This is what Paul... This man lived in light of eternity. Evident by by what we have here in the Scriptures. Evident even by these closing remarks here in Romans. In Romans 8.18, remember what he said? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul could really say this. He knew suffering in a real way. So not just the sufferings that we all face as human beings, but the sufferings for living for Christ. 
I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, he says, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That man fixed, he had his eyes, his heart fixed on eternity, on Christ, on the glory of it all. And that's what drove him, and that's what allowed him to say, yeah, I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned, I've been knocked down, kicked, battered, you know, still going, still going. It's like, almost like, and besides all those things, I got the anxiety of, the, you know, worried about all the churches, but I'm pressing on. We, we, get a, we get a bad runny nose, and we're like, I don't know, man, I don't know, I might be down for the cow. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard to relate on some level, but this man lived in, in light of eternity. Listen, here's another one. This was written to Timothy during his second imprisonment. He's not in prison at this time when he's writing Romans, but he, he will be in prison, and then he'll get released, and then he'll be in prison again, and that'll be the last time, and then that'll be it for Paul. He writes this letter to his uh, son in the faith, Timothy, so it's during his second imprisonment in Rome. It was shortly before he was killed for his faith in A.D. 67. And this is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 8. He tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. It's like, what? You know, remember. There's that remember. Remember Jesus Christ. You keep your eyes fixed on him. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. He's in prison bound with chains as a criminal. And you could just, you know, you could just see someone just going downhill, but not Paul. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. All those people that God has chosen before the foundations of the world that they might be saved, that they might believe in Jesus Christ, that they might have eternal life. Therefore I endure for them that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This man was fixed on eternity. And that's what drove him. That's that's what powered him. How about this? This is a familiar passage. You've probably heard it. Jesus himself instructs us to be fixed on eternity. In uh, Matthew 6, 19, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves, what? Treasures on earth. That's the temporary. That's here. That's now. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves, what? That's the eternal. That's glory. That's, that's the thing that Paul had his mind and his heart and his life fixed on, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is not saying you can't own a house. Okay? He's talking about where are, where's your focus? Where's your priority in life? Are you living in light of eternity? Are you living for the glory that is to come? That's the application. And we, we made the observation, Paul's living. He was living in light of that eternity. Man, I've, as I said, if anybody, no one would have questioned Paul. Well, we wouldn't have, especially in America, right? With our, you know, 
you work a little bit, and then hopefully, you, in fact, we even try to find jobs where we can even stop working earlier. And I'm not, even, I'm not even commenting on that. I'm just saying the idea that that would also mean maybe I'm going to do my ministry for a while, and then I'm just going to bail on it. That idea, you know, as you carry that over, that you would just, I'll do this for a while, and then, you know, I'll stop working for God because I've done my part. What are you talking about? But, it, but if anybody would have not faulted Paul for taking maybe, I don't know, a year off, right? It, it would have been, I mean, we could look at him and go, we wouldn't have said, Paul, what's your problem? But the man didn't do that. Why? Well, he didn't know. He knew he was, he knew death was coming one way or another, either just because he's going to die because of old age or more likely, and this is what happened, he would die because of his faith, because of his bold proclamation of, the Jesus, uh, of Jesus Christ, right? But so he's saying, listen, I'm going to make every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour count for the glory of God. Because he's living in light of eternity. So it, it doesn't mean he didn't eat, that he didn't, you know, hang out with his friends and stuff at times. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you could take this too far and go, I, that's it, Jeremy. I'm selling my house and I'm going to start preaching the gospel on the corners of, you know, and I'm going to stop taking care of my kids or my wife. No, no, that's not what it means. Paul was called to a specific task, to a specific ministry, and he was dedicated to fulfilling it no matter what because the man lived in light of eternity. Well, beloved, you too are called to a task. And the only way you're going to fulfill that task in a way that honors God is if you're living in light of eternity. So, for instance, let me kind of give you some probing questions that might help you as you try to analyze, are you living in light of eternity, right? What is more important to you? Again, priorities. So I'm not saying one is not important. I'm saying what is more important to you? That your children get a college degree or that they know the truth about God and that they come to saving faith? It's just a diagnostic question for you to consider. College is important. But if that becomes the priority, that's more important than taking the time to train up your child in the way that they should go, indoctrinating them. I like that word for that. Brainwashing them, it's good. Because their brains need to be washed. Because the world, listen, the world's doing it. The world brainwashes them every day. Don't apologize for brainwashing your kids with the truth. Brainwash them. But is that important to you? Is that so important to you that you're setting aside the time to do that? Some people will put a lot of emphasis in, maybe they're working so hard because they want to see their kids get through college or go to college. It's not a bad thing, guys. I'm just saying, but then... They leave no time in their lives to disciple their children because they're so busy working. You see what I'm saying? That's not living in light of eternity. What is more important to you? Here's another diagnostic question for you. Is it where it is you work or live? Or the souls of those who work around you and live near you? What is more important? We put a lot of emphasis into where exactly we work or even more so where we live. I want to live in this particular neighborhood. Is, look, there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with wanting to live here or there or live in this state or that state. Okay? I'll tell you, if I didn't have a church here, I'd already be out of California. <laughs> Plus the family. 
I try to take you guys with me is what I would do, but I cannot take everyone with me, so I'm here. I'm here, but what is more important to me? Where I live or the folks that live around me where God has placed me whose souls hang there in eternity? One way or another, they're going to go either to hell or to heaven. What's really my priority? So God, wherever you put me then, if I'm living in light of eternity, wherever you put me, whatever workplace you put me in, that is, that is fine, but more importantly, it's another opportunity to have contact with folks and bring the gospel into their lives. You see what I'm saying? What is more important to you, that you don't suffer in this life or that you proclaim the gospel regardless of the cost? Right? So for many of us, comfort, these temporary things, are very important to us. Therefore, we do not speak forth the truths of the gospel because when we do, guess what happens? You get beat with 40 lashes minus one. <laughs> no, probably not, but there is a degree of, I don't know, hostility that comes your way potentially. Uh, maybe you're made to look like a fool among your unbelieving, lost co-workers or friends or these kind of things. But if I'm living in light of eternity, then I know this. I know that even that little suffering that I may do is a temporary matter and it does not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. It doesn't compare. Beyond that, I know these people need to hear this. They need it bad in a bad way. They need to hear about Jesus Christ. So what's more important to you, that you don't suffer in this life or that you make the gospel known in the place that God has you, wherever that is? You may not be a pioneer evangelist, beloved, but that doesn't mean you don't have a ministry. You have a ministry. Go and make disciples. Huh? And that begins in your home, in your community, in your workplace, within the church. All right, so he lived in light of eternity. Wow. Okay, five. We'll try to do this one fast because we have two more. Paul truly went out of his way in order to help the people of God. That's the observation. He went, he went out of his way to help the people of God. So listen, the man's balanced. He just balanced in every way. He had a strong passion to preach the gospel, but he also had a huge heart and concern for God's people. So it wasn't one or the other. It was both. It's like, man, I'm I'm trailblazing, baby, and I'm making disciples everywhere I go, and he never looks back. No, he's always looking back. He's always concerned. He's always thinking about the church. He's a balanced man, okay, in this way as well. And he had a heart, a big heart for the people of God, so much so that he would go out of his way in order to serve them, to help them. It's, it's kind of like that, uh, what he said in Galatians 6.10, right? He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's believers. Another translation says it this way, let us make a special point of doing good to those who belong to the family of believers. And Paul lived what he taught. He lived what he taught. So let's look back at the text. Romans 15, these closing comments, uh, verse 25 through 28. At present, however, okay, so I want to come, 
I want to hang out for a little bit, but that's only because I'm going to get there, get a little refreshment, but it's just so that I can get on my way, hopefully, with a little help from you, on to Spain. But at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, believers, for Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, so he's talking about the churches now that were in northern and southern Greece, churches that were primarily Gentile. They have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Uh, The saints at Jerusalem, by the way, were predominantly Jewish. It was a Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, all right? For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Another translation puts it this way, For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. There's a reciprocal blessing going on here. So if they've been blessed spiritually because of them, then they should have no problem with blessing them materially. In fact, one one writer puts it this way, Paul's alluding here to really the central theological theme of the letter, that the salvation enjoyed by the Gentiles comes only by way of the Jewish Messiah and the fulfillment of promises that were made to Israel, as we saw in chapter 11, 17 through 24. So, verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain. See, that's his focus, by way of you. Okay. So the, the one writer, historically, adding some historical comment here, says, At the time Paul wrote this letter, to Rome, the church in Jerusalem was suffering not only great persecution for their faith, but great poverty. There was a famine throughout Palestine, and because of persecution by unbelieving Jews, many Christian men lost their jobs, and many others were put in prison, making bad conditions still worse for their families. So, while Paul is out there trailblazing for Jesus Christ and making the gospel known during his third missionary journey, he took it upon himself to address these needs, the needs of his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, by taking up a collection among his mainly Gentile mission churches. Now, here are a few references. We know about this because he writes about it in the New Testament. So, for instance, uh, Corinth, by the way, was a province of Achaia, Achaia that he mentions here, uh, in verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution. Corinthians resides in Achaia. Okay? Here's what he says in his letter in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Or another way to say that is, as in keeping with his income. So as he is able, as he prospers, he's to take a little and set it aside. Why? Do this weekly. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Or so that I won't have to take up an offering when I come. In other words, when I get there, I want this to be something you've been working on, doing. You're putting aside some money for these saints in Jerusalem, and just make sure you're doing it as you go so we don't have to try to gather the whole church together when I get there and go through all that, that the money will be there, I'll be able to get it, and I'll be able to get on my way, okay? Because the guy's he's a busy man. He's a busy man. He's an efficient man. Uh, in 2 Corinthians now, you also see reference to this collection. He's referring there to the churches of Macedonia uh, here when he says in verse 3, the churches of Macedonia, 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is that collection that's going on. And they, they were not well off. They're actually poor. But they, so they gave, not just according to their means, but they gave above and beyond even that. And then in 2 Corinthians, same book, just a chapter later, chapter 9, he says this. This is verses 1 through 7. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia, church in Corinth, were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. So there's like excitement here about this. Uh, this enthusiasm's catching. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance to finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And this verse 7 is what we often quote when we're giving our offerings. But in the context, it's specifically tied to this collection. He says, each, but it would apply across the board to giving generally. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul's not saying, don't give because I'm, you know, like I'm strong-arming you to give. But on, on some level, Paul is uh, strongly encouraging them to give to this cause, okay? And not only that, but making sure it gets completed and collected and gets back in the middle of everything else he's trying to do. And actually, listen, all of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, all of them are actually about the gift of this, this, that gift or the collection. They're all about that. This collection for the saints in Jerusalem, it was a serious matter for Paul, one that he had made a priority. And that can be seen, as one writer put it, from this, partly from the disproportionate amount of space which he devoted to it in his letters. Like I said, if you look at his letters and the length of the letters, there's a lot in some of these letters. There's a big chunk given just to this particular issue, the collection. As I just said, chapters 8 and 9 of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians are all about that. Or it's partly from the passionate zeal with which he promoted it. You can see that. And here we go. Partly from his astonishing decision to add nearly 2,000 miles to his journey in order to present the offering himself instead of sailing directly west from Corinth to Rome to Spain. Paul, when Paul wrote Romans, he was in Greece, Corinth area, okay? He has made up his mind to travel first in entirely the wrong direction. That is to go to Rome via Jerusalem. So I thought I'd show you a map real quick. You guys have time, right? You don't have to go anywhere today? Good. Okay. Uh, okay. All right, see this? That's Jerusalem. Right there? Okay. Paul is right here. Paul's right in this area. There's Rome. There's Spain. So Paul's here. He could hop over here. He could either probably just take a boat. And then right from here, I don't know, maybe he'd make his way by land, because that looks treacherous, but maybe this way. But instead, Paul says, uh, guys, before I 
go there. I'm going to go back down here. <laughs> and then somehow I'll get back over there into Spain. 2,000 miles added to his trip. Beloved, I, only, I, only, I just show you that because it's historical, it's true, it, the ge- geography maybe helps you get it, that Paul seriously went out of his way in order to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, the man had a passion for planting churches and preaching the gospel. That was his uh, wheelhouse. There's a contemporary word. That was his thing, man. That's what he loved to do. But no less did he love the people of God. No less. And so he'd do, he'd do whatever it took. Whatever sacrifice was needed, he would do it. And that's demonstrated by this whole collection process and the fact that he wants to make sure that they get it. He's going to bring it to them. By the way, by the way, another note on this. It's not... It's not just this act of charity that Paul is bringing forth. That was important. People were hungry. They needed, the, they needed the offering. They needed the collection. They were hurting. And when I say people, I mean the people of God. That's who he was doing this for. Uh, but in addition to that, Paul, and most commentators point this out, Paul no doubt saw this collection as an opportunity to build a bridge, if you will, between the Gentile Christian community and the Jewish Christian community or uh, as a way to help promote unity among the two groups. Okay, Remember, where did he take the collection from? Predominantly Gentile churches. Who was the collection going to? Predominantly Jewish community. So one writer adds this. During this period, there was still considerable animosity and distrust between Jewish and Gentile believers. The contribution from the primarily Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia was a powerful gesture of love and reconciliation to the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. And I believe, so Paul, listen, he cared for them physically, their physical needs, but he also cared for the church at large spiritually. And he knew that there was still a divide in some sense between the two. There was animosity built up over centuries. And the gospel is supposed to eradicate all that. But what a beautiful way to to carry out the gospel and to demonstrate the oneness in Christ. And so Paul facilitates this great collection. And it cost him. It was a great sacrifice for him to do it. But he was willing to do it because he loved the people of God. Beloved, are you willing to go out of your way to help your brothers and sisters in Christ? We made the observation. Now, if we're to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ, is that us? Are we willing to do that? Or would we be like, no way, man. I'm on my way to Spain. I got places to go and people to see. I don't got no time for that. Let alone take up a collection in the middle of me trying to make Jesus known. Man, you know, these, I mean, when he wrote back to 2 Corinthians, just so you know, there was false teachers and apostles and people coming in there trying to question Paul's uh, apostolic authority and stuff. So part of that little stuff going on in there is basically him saying, now remember, we had a deal. Remember, you were, now don't go back on that. Don't go back. Don't be thinking about going back on that, this idea. Remember, I talked to you about collecting, so he's letting them know, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I've been, I've been boasting about you to the Macedonians, and when we show up with them, I don't want them to go, whoa, where's the offering? Because there was a concern that maybe they were questioning whether or not they should give him the offering now. And so Paul's having to deal with all that, but he does it. He doesn't back away with it. He, from it, he does it, man. The man, the man is a model of what it is to live according to the Spirit of God, to walk in the Spirit, to live that transformed life. 
And from that, so we can see it, we can look at it, and we can draw from that for our own lives. And yeah, let me see. This one's just uh, really simple, and I'll make it really simple because we're out of time. And I just want to be done with this section. Paul, on behalf of his ministry, here's the observation, on behalf of his ministry and the church, solicited the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. There's two ideas I want to talk about right there. They're going to be quick, but that's the observation. Paul, on behalf of his ministry and the church, solicited the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Where do I find that? That's in uh, verses 30 through 33 uh, of chapter 15, the final part here. Look at it with me. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, that, that behalf, that's on behalf of his ministry. That's on behalf of what he's doing. That I may be, this is how we know, so here it is, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem, remember he's going there, Maybe in Judea, Jerusalem is within the area of Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So listen, historically again, Paul anticipates the challenges he's going to face when he makes his way to Jerusalem, located in the middle of Judea. It's like the, they call it the, belly button of uh, Judea. Kind of everything kind of caves in there. And in light of those challenges, Paul asked those in Rome to pray for, for two things. First, he wants them to pray for his safety among the unbelievers there or the unbelieving Jews. Okay? The unbelieving Jews were hostile towards Paul. They hated Paul. They wanted to kill Paul. But why did Paul pray for his safety? Was it because he was concerned about his personal safety? Not ultimately, no, beloved. Ultimately, no. It was because in order to get to Spain, (laughs) he needs to remain safe. He needs to get out or get in and get out alive. Okay? So even that prayer request, even that prayer, just hold that thought, was really for eternity's sake, for the glory of the gospel that more might be know Jesus Christ, or that might be heard. That's what he's praying for. By the way, it's interesting. They prayed for that. It came the way not how he thought. He was protected by being arrested, by being arrested by the Roman authorities, because when he got there, stuff happened. He was attacked, but he was arrested and then eventually made his way to Rome as a prisoner. So he even got to Rome, but he was protected. He wasn't killed by the mobs. Fascinating. God just, you know, he's a mind blower, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm going to answer that prayer. Not how you thought, but I am going to answer it because I have, I have purposes for you. I'll keep you alive, Paul. Okay? And second, he desires that his service or collection for Jerusalem will be acceptable to the saints. That is, that it would be gladly received by the Jewish Christians there and help to promote good relations between the Jewish and Gentile believers. That's his concern. Again, it's not about Paul. His request, it's about his ministry. It's about the church. It's about, I want to get to Spain, so I'd like to get in and get out. And when I get there, though, I want to bring this offering, and I hope, I hope the Jews won't go, what? Gentile money? I hope they'll see it for what it is. 
I hope, they'll, I hope it will help establish a, a, a sense of unity among the people of God, that we are in one together in this in Christ, and that we are caring for one another and, and, and that, okay? So again, it's his care for the church, these prayer requests. So the simple points I'm drawing out here is he, he a couple things. One, he doesn't keep these challenges to himself, right? So he doesn't just say nothing, he doesn't just you know, say nothing, but he brings them to the church in Rome. He appeals to the believers in Rome to pray on his behalf, to join with him, to partner with him in asking God for help in his ministry. Okay? So I would just say about that, Paul's not a proud man. He's not a, I got this. And if anybody could say that, I, it could be Paul, but Paul knew it wouldn't be Paul because he knew very well that everything that was happening was because of God in his life and through his life. And he's not a man who's afraid to ask for help. So I think Paul would ask for directions. I think he would. If he was lost, I think Paul would ask for directions. I'm joking. God, listen, he's a, you understand, he's a humble man. And he's a man that says, will you help me? Will you please help me? I, I don't... I need you, body of Christ, to come alongside me, to partner with me in this ministry. For what purpose? To accomplish what I hope to accomplish. I want to go to Spain. So when I get in there, I want to get out of there. And when I bring the gift, that's why I'm going, I hope it really does something. I hope it's effective. I hope they receive it well. But I need your help in this great cause. And he wasn't afraid to ask. And I just think sometimes we're maybe proud, I think. I don't know. And we don't ask. We don't make people aware of uh, our needs in Christ. But more importantly, beloved, I want to say this. Look at what he's praying for. Just think about that. Again, he's praying for, ultimately, that not that just that he would be safe. By the way, you can write this down and look at it later. Acts 21, uh, 10 through 15. You can look at it later. Agabus told Paul before he got, he was on his way to Jerusalem to take the collection. Agabus the prophet told him, they're going to bind you, Paul, you're in trouble, Paul. And everyone's like, don't go, Paul. Don't go. And Paul's like, why are you guys breaking my heart? What are you doing? I'm willing to die. I'm going. I'm willing to die for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't want to die there because he wanted to get to Spain so he could preach the gospel. But that's not going to stop me. So that right away, I know right away, Paul is not concerned about his own life. He's concerned about the eternal life of those in Spain. You get me? And that's what he was, that's the prayer request he's making. And so, for us, beloved, for us, and then beyond that, he's praying that that offering and the transaction would go well. For us, there's nothing wrong, with, there's nothing wrong, and we should do this, be requesting prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ on our behalf for the sake of illnesses or sickness or jobs or whatever. But how awesome would it be, how awesome would it be if a lot of our prayer requests were in this vein, hey, I'm going to speak to Billy Bob next week, and Billy Bob is lost, and I pray that you would pray with me, strive with me in praying for him that God would open his eyes, that he might see the glory of Jesus Christ and put his faith and trust and hope in him. Where are those prayer requests? You know what I'm saying? And I bet that work is going on. People are doing that, but maybe they're not engaging the body of Christ. They should be. But I think a lot of times that work is not really going on because we're kind of so focused on the here and now. Huh? Think about those prayer requests. I would, I would be blown away if our table app for our prayer request was, and it's there for all the things that you have going on in your life, but what if it was filled up with other stuff like that? You know? 
hey, I'm going to L.A., pray I get in and get out alive. No, no, right? That's fine. That's a good prayer request. That's fine. But if I knew the idea was you're going in and getting out because you're on your way for some evangelistic encounter, or hey, I'm going to talk to a Christian brother or sister, you know, without giving out names, about a kind of a touchy situation, pray that it would go well. Pray that there would be restoration and reconciliation. Pray for those things, right? And in, in bringing in the body of Christ. You know what that would do? Think about what Paul does here. He just recenters their mind. He refocuses. He reshifts it. That this is what we should be primarily thinking about and engaging in, right? Paul's not like, pray that I find a good place to eat when I get there. Again, nothing wrong with that, but just think of the focus and think of the request. Paul, on behalf of his ministry in the church, solicited the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Children's ministry is going to be very angry with me, so please, I'm going to close this out right here. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time, and uh, thank you for your word, and I pray that it would do its work uh, in us and among us. And we ask that all for your sake, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.